to John chapter 6. You'll find a full uh, copy of the notes printed at both exits and also online. There are also um, audio messages on the church website, and so you can take advantage of those as well. The Burns were telling me when we had them over to dinner when they were home the last time, their, their kids were looking kind of puzzled because they said, that's the voice that we listen to every Sunday in Turkey. And uh, they listened to the messages online over there, and their kids uh, were putting it together. Oh, that's the guy. So uh, God does use that. Um, this morning we are in verses 41 to 47 of uh, John chapter 6. We're working our way through this wonderful gospel that John wrote for us. <clears throat> Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. When I've received uh, training on how to share my faith, some of you may have received training in that area, the instruction has often been along the lines of, of showing unbelievers how easy it is to believe in Jesus. For example, uh, use analogies of faith. You know, you trusted the company that made your breakfast cereal this morning without doing a chemical analysis on it. Uh, you trust your doctor when you go to your doctor. You take that piece of paper to the pharmacy and you trust an unknown pharmacist to give you the right prescription. And, and uh, you trust the mechanic who fixed the brakes on your car. So now you can just trust Jesus. It's, it's easy. Uh, some of these evangelistic methods also uh, discourage you from focusing on the person's sin or on the need for repentance, or on the subject of God's wrath and His coming judgment, because, well, that's going to kind of scare them away and put them off. And so, rather, you're supposed to focus on God's love for every person, and a faith in Christ, and maybe keeping it positive on how Jesus can meet their need for personal peace, or meet their need for a happy home life, or how to rear their children or have a successful career. All of that sort of thing is, is the focus of these training methods. And um, the implication is after you close the deal, you know, after they pray the prayer and they're in, then you can deal with the hard stuff. Have you ever noticed, though, how Jesus often took the opposite approach? Have you ever had anybody run up to you and say, 
What must I do to be saved? I mean, wow. You know, that's an opportunity, is it not? And, and Jesus had that very opportunity with the rich young ruler, and Jesus easily could have said, hey man, it's easy. You know, God loves you, man, and I love you too, and just pray the prayer and believe in me, and you're in. It's easy. And you know what Jesus said to him. Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments? What kind of legalism is that? And the young man said, well, I've done that all my life, you know. I've got a good record of that. And so then Jesus said to him, this is Luke 18, 22, Okay, one thing you lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Not so easy. Or Jesus told the unbelieving crowd in Mark 8, 34 and 35, If anyone wishes to come after me, just believe. Pray the prayer. Oh, God loves you all. Have a good day. Bye. No, that's not what he said. He said this, let him deny himself. He must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. You know, the cross was a gruesome thing. And everybody knew Jesus was talking about dying to yourself. Not so easy, is it, to die to yourself? But the point is, Jesus never softened the Gospel to win a big following. If anything, when people kind of came at him with an easy approach, he always upped the ante. He always came back and said, well, you know, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? That's what you're in for. He always did that. Not so easy. Now, I kind of had a breakthrough this week in studying John 6.44. To be honest, I've known of that verse for decades and used it, but I had never really thought about the context here. Uh, the context. But Jesus says here, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I am convinced that in order to understand that verse, you have to understand it in context. And that is that Jesus is talking here to unbelieving skeptics. He's not talking to believers. He's talking with unbelieving skeptics. They've eaten the miraculous bread and they want to make Jesus king, but they want to make him the the wrong kind of king. They want him to be, you know, the king who provides uh, uh, food, lifetime supply of food and uh, the kind of uh, life they want. And so Jesus withdrew from them. And then they came seeking him in Capernaum and they find him. But they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. They basically want a new Moses who's going to, you know, give them a chicken in every pot and all, all the bennies that they want in life. And that's not the kind of Savior Jesus came to be. So they have this wrong expectation of who the Messiah ought to be. And Jesus corrects their errors and he tells them in verse 35, as we saw last time, I am the bread of life. I'm the true bread out of heaven. 
I can satisfy your spiritual hunger. And then Jesus, in verse 36, confronted their unbelief. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. That's incredible. You know, a lot of times we think, wow, if I could have just been there and seen a miracle, I'd be in. No. They saw Jesus and still were unbelieving. And then, as we saw last time, Jesus brings up the sovereign plan of God there in verses 37 to 40. And if you missed that message, encourage you to get it or listen to it. Um, Jesus is making the point that his mission will absolutely succeed because his mission is one and the same with the Father's sovereign will. And there is nothing more certain in life than that God's will will be accomplished, that he will attain his purpose. And so Jesus, in that context, confronts these grumbling Jews here in our text. They thought they knew his origin. Well, this is just the the son of uh, Joseph and Mary, isn't it? And uh, we know where he's from. How can he say that he's come down out of heaven? And they're, they're grumbling about Jesus. I mean, how can he be the, the bread of life? See, they're challenging his claims. And uh, sometimes Jesus followed the principle that he lays down in Matthew 7, where he says, don't throw your, your pearls before swine. When he's before the swine, Herod, he doesn't answer him a word. He's just silent. Herod had enough witness. He's going to hell. Jesus didn't witness to Herod. But here he responds to his critics. And uh, it's an interesting response. First of all, he doesn't defend himself. Secondly, he doesn't correct their error. You know, you think I'm born of Joseph and Mary, but really the angel supernaturally, uh, the Holy Spirit supernaturally conceived me in the mother of in my mother Mary. And, you know, he doesn't go into that at all. He just leaves them in the dark in their mistaken ideas about who he is, where he's from. And instead... Uh, of telling them, you know, hey, God loves you all and you all need to believe in me and all of that. No, Jesus restates his teaching here about God's sovereignty over salvation. And he shows these unbelievers their total inability to believe in him, to come to him for salvation unless God sovereignly gives them the grace. Now, as I said last week, that is a subject that some pastors won't even preach on. Some pastors don't even believe it, uh, but they won't bring it up. And I would venture to say that most pastors in America, if you ask them, should you talk about divine sovereignty over salvation with unbelievers, they would go, oh, no. You know, that's for, that's for the in-house crowd. That's for the believers. But here, the remarkable thing is, with unbelievers, Jesus brings this up and hits them with it full force, uh, and shows them, you guys can't even come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. That's how weak, in a, unable you are spiritually. You need divine grace in your life. And Jesus, I think, is giving us a lesson in how to witness to skeptics. And this also, by the way, is it will do several things. Number one... If you're here as a skeptic, the message is for you. I don't know how many may be in that category. Number two, 
Uh, as a Christian, this will help your understanding of the gospel. The gospel on one level is very simple, easy to believe. A preschooler can believe it, understand it. But then there are layers where you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think I went deeper this week to grasp this text. And so I hope that it will do that for you. And then the third aim I have is I want to equip you so that when you meet a skeptic, you, you maybe have a little more in your arsenal of how do I respond to this person? And, and here we see that Christ witnessed to skeptics by doing three things. By confronting their attitude, by showing them their spiritual inability, and then by pointing them to faith in himself as their only hope of eternal life. First, let's look at how Jesus witnessed to these skeptics by confronting their attitude. And here I want to reread verses 41 to 43. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother, father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? And here's Jesus's answer to them. Do not grumble among yourselves. He confronts their grumbling. Now, John almost always uses the word Jews to refer to those who are hostile toward Jesus. And I can't help but think that he wants us to go back here to the Old Testament. I'm reading through Exodus in my quiet time and this morning uh, read about the Jews grumbling to Moses. Oh, you know, you brought us out here to die in this lousy wilderness. There's no food. There's no water. That's how the Jews brought themselves under judgment in the Old Testament. Here they're doing the very same thing with the living word, Jesus, right in their midst. And, and the cause of their grumbling is, Jesus says, I have come down out of heaven. And they're going, wait a minute, you were born in Nazareth. We know Joseph. We know Mary. Uh, you know, what kind of a claim is that? And so they're challenging his claim. Notice how important it is in this chapter that Jesus came down out of heaven. It's implied in verse 32 where he says, My Father gives you the true bread out of heaven. It's stated in verse 33, uh, the bread of God which comes down out of heaven uh, and gives life to the world. Um, And then it's in verse uh, 38 where Jesus says, I've come down out of heaven not to do my own will. It's in verse 50. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. It's in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And it's in verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. I mean, it's just by repetition, John is saying, don't miss this. Jesus did not begin when he was born of Mary, and Joseph was not his father. John has already told us in chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, the eternal Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's uh, reference to the virgin birth. And so there's irony here, because John is saying, you readers know what I told you back in chapter 1, verse 14, right? And these people didn't know. If they only knew the truth, they wouldn't be carping about, how can Jesus say he came down out of heaven? They would be bowing before him. Now, Jesus, as I said, does not correct their misunderstanding. 
Rather, he confronts their attitude. Verse 43, don't grumble among yourselves. Why does he do that? Well, grumblers invariably are setting themselves up as sovereign over God. Aren't we doing that when we grumble? You know, we're, we're, we're saying if God only saw things my way, he wouldn't be letting this problem happen in this manner. You know, and, and I'm smarter than God is because I know that this isn't the way to run the universe, at least my corner of it. And if God would just see it my way, then life would be a lot better. So I'm setting myself up as a sovereign over God. And, and uh, telling God how to run the world. And I'm implying, I know more than God knows. If God were just as smart as I am, then he would change my circumstances and make things a lot smoother for me. And so, rah, 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 we grumble against the sovereign God. And these grumblers think that they are competent to pass judgment on Jesus. It's incredible. See, I know better than Jesus about his origin. He didn't come down from heaven. He's born right over there in that village of Nazareth. So they go. And so Jesus starts with confronting their attitude. And the point is this. Grumblers will not believe in Jesus, even if they've seen him feed 20,000 people with five loaves and two little fish. Even if they've seen Jesus heal the sick. Raise the dead, as we'll see in chapter 11. Open the eyes of the blind, chapter 9. They, they have to repent of their grumbling attitude. Because that grumbling attitude is going to keep them from belief. And so what I'm saying is, at the root of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. These people had plenty of evidence. At the root of unbelief is an attitude that says, I am superior to God. I know what is right and what is wrong for me. And if God would just get on board with me, things would go better. See, that's the root sin there in unbelief. In John 7:17, 7, for example, Jesus says, If anyone is doing, willing to do his, the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. And so he said, saying, at the root of, of a correct understanding of Jesus is a willingness to be subject to God. To recognize Jesus is Lord, I am not Lord. And, and Jesus says, if you have that attitude, that approach, you'll know the teaching that I'm from God. So it's an attitude issue. And I've often told you this before, but say you're, you're sharing the faith with the skeptic. And uh, he says, well, I, I, you know, I've got issues. Yeah, well, what are your issues? Well, I believe in evolution. And, uh, you know, how can God allow all the suffering in the world? And there are many errors in the Bible. And, you know, there's sort of a stock bunch of objections they raise. Uh, a good answer to those kind of skeptics is to say, um, are you telling me that if I can provide reasonable answers for those objections, that you're going to repent of your sin and submit your life to Jesus as Lord. And you know what they'll say? Well, there's other objections. You know, it's just a smokescreen. One time, I think I've told you this story. There was a man in my church. He used to come with his wife and sit there, you know, and scowl at me during the sermon. And so, you know, you, you can pick up the vibes, okay? And uh, 
So one time his wife was having some pretty serious surgery, and I went up to the hospital to sit with this guy. And so I said to him, uh, hey, you know, you've been coming to church a lot. I said, uh, where, where are you at spiritually? Well, I got a lot of objections, problems. And so I, I said that to him. Well, give them to me. I said, we've got a couple hours here, you know. Let's go through some of them. Oh, well, there, there are many of them. And I said, well, uh, give me one. You know, let's talk about it. And he finally said, you know, if I've been hearing you correctly, if I trust in Jesus, I have to let him be Lord of all my life. Is that right? I said, yeah, you got it. And he said, I'm not ready to do that. And I said, well, at least you understand where the issues are. And later I had the privilege of baptizing him and uh, had an email from him a couple of years ago. They live up in Oregon now and still going on with the Lord, thankfully. But anyway, you see, if somebody isn't willing to submit to Jesus and they want to use Jesus to get what they want out of life, that's the basic problem of these grumblers here. They want Jesus to be their kind of Messiah. Then when you believe in Jesus, you're not believing in him as Lord, you're believing in him as Aladdin's genie. And that's the wrong kind of Jesus to believe in. He's not Aladdin's genie. He is the Lord God. And you have to come to him in submission and deal with your grumbling attitude and uh, submit to Jesus. And before I move on to verses 44 and 45, let me just apply that to us as believers because we are not exempt from grumbling, are we? I, I am candidate number one. Rah, 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 rah. Whether it's the slow lady in front of me in traffic and I'm late, or whether it's a big problem, when problems come, I think our, our default mode is rah, 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 rah. we grumble. You know, and we've got to deal with that attitude because if you're grumbling, you're not giving thanks, are you? And Paul says, give thanks in all things. A thankful spirit. And if you're grumbling, you're not submitting. Now, there's a proper way to complain to the Lord. The psalmists do that once in a while. But they're doing it submissively. Lord, you know, I'm your servant and I, I'm struggling and I've got this problem. And Father, I, I bring it to you and ask if it would be in your will, would you remove it? That's a submissive way to bring your complaint to the Lord. But not to come shaking your fist in his face and saying, you know, I deserve better treatment than this. Uh-uh. Got to deal with our grumbling. Do not grumble among yourselves. The second way that Christ witnessed to these skeptics was by stripping them of all spiritual self-confidence. And here uh, we're looking at verses 44 and 45. Let me first read verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And if you'll look down on the page to verse 65, you'll notice that he basically repeats the same thing, except he substitutes, instead of the Father's drawing, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. It's a divine gift that God must grant, and obviously he doesn't grant it to everyone. Now, I had to, as I said, scratch my head a long time this week as I was studying, why would Jesus bring this up with a bunch of grumbling skeptics? I mean, I could see if he got his disciples in a huddle and said, guys, let's go deep in our theology here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And they all would have gone, wow, you know, that's profound. And let's talk about divine sovereignty and all of that. But here he is witnessing why in the world does he bring it up with these 
skeptics. Well, I think there are at least three things that are happening. First of all, unbelieving skeptics need to be stripped of their proud self-confidence. I think that's the main reason Jesus tells these, these skeptics, you cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. Uh, because skeptics are invariably proud of their mental ability. You know, I am a thinker. I, I'm smart enough to get this straight, man. You know, and I've thought this through. And, and, and they think that unbelievers, I mean, the believers are a bunch of uh, uneducated simpletons. You know, if these people here had half a brain, they'd see how unreasonable it is that Jesus came down from heaven. We all know the facts. He came from Nazareth, blah, 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 and on and on. Skeptics go. They are proud of their intellect. And they think that their intellect is sovereign over God. You know, we can figure God out. Yeah, yeah, if God were a good God, He wouldn't allow suffering and da-da-da-da-da. And they base all of their understanding about God on their logic and their study and their understanding. And uh, they think that um, they know, you know, they've, they've got it wired. They know about God. Now, if a skeptic comes to Christ through his own intellect or his own willpower or his own decision, then he's coming in pride, and pride is antithetical to gospel repentance. Because pride is the number one sin we all face. It's the root of every sin. And if you haven't confronted your pride, you're not a Christian. Pride is the enemy of us all. And you have to repent of your pride and say, I cannot save myself. Only Jesus can save. And, and all my good works are in vain. And all my intellectual uh, knowledge is in vain. I, I, I am helpless and hopeless unless God is gracious to save me. And so the Bible yanks that rug out of pride under, from underneath us by saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. J.C. Ryle and his expository thoughts on the Gospels, and that's just a gem of a, of a book. And, um, but here, here, I'm going to quote him extensively here, because I think he really nails it here. He says, Our Lord desired to magnify their danger and guilt to make them see that faith in him was not so easy an affair as they supposed. It was not knowledge of his origin alone, but the drawing grace of God the Father which they needed. Let them awake to see that and cry for grace before it was too late. The general lesson of the sentence is one of vast importance. Our Lord lays down the great principle that no man whatsoever can come to Christ by faith and really believe in him unless God the Father draws him so uh, so to come, and inclines his will to believe. The nature of man since the fall is so corrupt and depraved that even when Christ is made known and preached to him, he will not come to him and believe in him without the special grace of God inclining his will and giving him a disposition to come. This is no doubt a very humbling truth, and one which in every age is called forth the hatred and opposition of man. The favorite notion of man is that he can do what he likes 
Repent or not repent. Believe or not believe. Come to Christ or not come. Entirely at his own discretion. In fact, man likes to think that his salvation is in his own power. Such notions are flatly contradictory to the text before us. The words of our Lord here are clear and unmistakable and cannot be explained away. Man never of himself begins with God. God must first begin with man. And this beginning is just the drawing of the text. That's what drawing means here. And so Jesus is saying to them here in verse 44, I know why you're grumbling, and I, don't, I, and I know why you don't believe in me. You've got a more desperate problem than you understand. Your problem is the Father has not drawn you to me. And uh, so Jesus is using that to strip them of their spiritual self-confidence. And that's the opposite of trusting Christ. If you're trusting yourself, whether it's your intellect, your will, whatever, hey, i got a wire, man, I can do it. I, blah, blah, blah. That's the very opposite of saying, you know what, I am helpless, I am hopeless, and I must cast myself entirely on the Savior, and without Him, I'm doomed. See, see the difference? People don't come of their own will. They come of the Father's will. The second thing that Jesus is doing here is he's showing that unbelieving skeptics need to realize then their inability to come to Christ apart from the Father's powerful drawing. There are some who argue, well, God doesn't force himself on anyone, and we all have to make our own decision to believe. It's up to the free will of man. And they explain, verse 44, and say, well, the Father's drawing is like wooing them. Have you heard that explanation? You know, a young man woos a young woman to come to him and, and uh, have a, a romance and a marriage. And that's what the father's doing. He's wooing sinners to himself. Well, there's a major problem with that. And that is the Greek word is used, for example, in John 21, when the disciples <clears throat> get that great net full of fish, they drag it to the shore and then they drag it up on the shore, and the word drag is the same word as draw here. They aren't saying, oh, please, little fishies, would you jump into our net? We love you. And wouldn't you like to swim up on the shore for us? No, they are forcibly dragging the fish to shore. Same word is used in, uh, in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and they uh, cast the demon out of the slave girl, and the angry slave owners grabbed them and dragged them to the city authorities. They weren't saying, oh, please, Paul and Silas, won't you come with us to the authorities? We'd like to prosecute you. No, they're dragging them. Same word is used in Acts 21 when Paul is in the temple in uh, Jerusalem and the angry mob grabs him and they are going to drag him out of the temple. They weren't wooing Paul out of the temple they were forcibly moving him out. Leon Morris, in his commentary, points out that there is always the idea of resistance with this verb in the New Testament, but he says there is not one example where the resistance was successful. He says always the drawing power is triumphant as here. Now, it doesn't mean 
that God drags people kicking and screaming to Jesus. But A.W. Pink explains it. He says, this drawing is the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the self-righteousness of the sinner and convicting him of his lost condition. It is the Holy Spirit awakening within him a sense of need. It is the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the pride of the natural man so that he is ready to come to Christ as an empty-handed beggar. It is the Holy Spirit creating in him a hunger for the bread of life. Now, you'll notice that the drawing of which Jesus speaks here is effectual. That is, it accomplishes what God is doing with it. It results in the sinner actually coming in faith to Jesus. Because in verse 44, Jesus says that of those the Father draws, I will raise him up on the last day. Also, in verse 45, Jesus reinforces that this is effectual when he says that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So if they are drawn, if they hear and learn from the Father, they come to Jesus, Jesus raises them up on the last day, which refers to the resurrection of the righteous. It's the same chain that we see in Romans 8, 29, and 30, where Paul says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. So Paul is showing there what Jesus here teaches, salvation is of the Lord, and the Lord doesn't fail when he purposes to save. And then the third point that Jesus is making here is this, that unbelieving skeptics need to realize that the Scriptures are the only source for the truth about Jesus that leads to salvation. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, Jesus is referring there to Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 13, maybe also alluding to Jeremiah 31, 34, but he's showing these proud skeptics who profess to believe in the Old Testament Scripture, your Bible says exactly what I am teaching you here. Um, The all in the quote is obviously true believers because the second half of the verse shows God draws all whom he teaches to believe in Jesus, and he teaches them through his word. So what he's saying is the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to open blind eyes to see the truth, the beauty about Jesus, and formerly resistant sinners see the truth about Jesus through God's working in their hearts. They are drawn to believe in Jesus. And so... You can know when you've been taught of God, when you've been stripped of all self-confidence, when you come in faith to Jesus as the Savior of whom all the Scripture speaks. Now again, what Jesus is doing here is stripping these proud skeptics of their own trust in their own intellect and their own power of reason. See, they think they can reason their way and say, well, Jesus isn't who he says he is because of these reasons. 
But again, if somebody can reason their way to salvation, then they can take pride in their reason. I'm smarter than that dumb guy that didn't believe because I know the facts. And they're coming in pride. And Jesus is saying here, the truth about him is contained in God's word. And no one can know that truth. No one has the mental capacity to understand it unless God opens their minds and teaches them. John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 27 of John, we saw, said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. I remember after Peter made his famous confession about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus immediately popped any pride in Peter by replying in Matthew 16:17, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." In other words, Peter, you didn't come to this by your own smarts. God has graciously given you the eyes to see who I am. And see if you're proud of your spiritual knowledge, And by the way, this is a problem for some who I think are true believers. Uh, You don't know what you think you know. Because true spiritual knowledge humbles you. True spiritual knowledge reveals the greatness of God and your own depravity and the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And it lays you on your face saying, oh, whoa. And you know what? The more you learn spiritually, the more you realize how puny your spiritual knowledge really is. I mean, the more I study the Word of God, the more I think, oh man, here I am getting late in life and I haven't even scratched the surface of this stuff. Where have I been? And so it humbles you. It doesn't puff you up with pride if you understand the truth. So Christ witnessed to these skeptics then by, first of all, confronting their attitude, and then secondly, by stripping them of all spiritual self-confidence. Thirdly, Christ witnessed to these skeptics by pointing them to faith in himself as their only hope for eternal life. And here, verse 46 and 47. Just have to touch on these quickly here. First of all, in verse 46... Christ witnessed to these skeptics by showing them he's the only one through whom they can know the Father. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, referring to himself. He has seen the Father. And that repeats the truth we saw back in the prologue in chapter 1, verse 18, where John said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so Jesus is the only one who can reveal and mediate the Father to us. And you cannot know the Father, Jesus says over in Luke 10:22, you cannot know the Father unless the Son wills to reveal him to you. Jesus is the the mediator between us and the Father. And that means you can't come to the Father through mysticism, visions you've had, revelations that you've had out of the blue, philosophy, human reason, you can only come to the Father through Jesus, and we only know about Jesus through the Word of God. Um, The second point Jesus makes in verse 47 is that Christ here encouraged skeptics with the promise that whoever believes in Him 
has eternal life as a present possession. He says, truly, truly, when he says that, perk up, listen to this, folks, this is important. I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And Jesus is here um, describing those who have eternal life. This is characteristic of all who have eternal life. They are believing in Jesus. I agree with Don Carson in his commentary who says, Notwithstanding the strong predestinarian thought in the preceding verses, this is an implicit invitation to believe and an implicit warning against unbelief. In this context, it strips the would-be disciple of all pretensions, of all self-congratulation, of all agendas save those laid down by Jesus himself, those who believe cannot approach Jesus as if they're doing him a favor. They must believe, but they do so on his terms and by his grace. Now, the verb believes in verse 47 is, in Greek, a present participle that emphasizes the ongoing nature of belief. In other words, you didn't believe back in grade school when you went to camp and, whoop, that's settled and now you don't believe. No, you go on believing. And the Gospel of John is all about that. That believers would believe and believe more and believe more and believe more of who Jesus is. And uh, <clears throat> we'll look next week at how we do that by feeding on Christ. But um, here's what Jesus says about those who are his sheep who hear his voice and who follow him in John 10:28, He says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's his invitation to every person here, to every one of us is come and believe in Jesus. And if you'll believe in Jesus, he gives you eternal life and you'll never lose it. And you will go on believing in Jesus in deeper and deeper and deeper ways as you grow. But to do that, you have to confront your arrogant attitude, your grumbling. You have to confront your skepticism. You have to be stripped of your self-confidence to think, well, I'm able to believe. No, you're not. Uh, I'm able to make a decision to come to Christ. No, you're not. You're dependent on God. And God humbles us all at the foot of the cross so that we cry out to the Father, Father, would you do a work of sovereign grace and save me, the sinner. God has to draw you to Jesus. Here's what C.H. Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher, wrote. The doctrine which leaves salvation to the creature and tells him that it depends upon himself is the exaltation of the flesh and a dishonoring of God. But that which puts in, God, in God's hand man, fallen man, and tells man that though he has destroyed himself, yet his salvation must be of God, that doctrine humbles man in the very dust, and then he is in just the right place to receive the grace and mercy of God. It is a humbling doctrine. And so I just want to ask you this morning, has God humbled your heart before Jesus? Has he drawn you to Jesus? And if not, my exhortation to you this morning is, stop grumbling and start praying, oh God, would you be merciful to me, the sinner? 
We all need Jesus. Let's bow before Him. Dear Father, I pray that You would use these inspired words that Jesus spoke to speak through me to any who are grumblers, to any who are skeptics, to any who think they can disregard Your Word and bring us all, Lord, into that humble place of dependence upon You. If there are those who have never repented of sin and of self-righteousness and come in faith to Jesus, I pray You would work that miracle of grace in their heart. If any of us as Your children just have a grumbling spirit, Lord, I pray You would convict us through Your Spirit and produce in us a genuine spirit of thanksgiving and submission and joy in our salvation. We thank You, Father, that though we do grumble often, You were merciful to save us. But help us to be a good advertisement for the grace that You've shown us by being a thankful and humble people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.